I mentioned that in September we'll be starting to look at the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. And this morning we're going to look at an incident that took place roughly 300 years before Jeremiah came along. So if you still have your Bibles, if you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. You'll find that in page 332 of the Green Church Bibles and page 511 in the larger print Bibles, the ones with the black cover. 2 Samuel chapter 24. As you can see, when you open your Bible, this is the very last chapter of 2 Samuel. So we need a little bit of background before we jump into this. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel record the life of King David, his rise and his fall and his restoration. When we first meet him in 1 Samuel, he isn't King David, he's just David, a young boy working for his dad as a shepherd. But God chose him. The prophet Samuel anointed him, and David rose eventually to become king of Israel. In his day, David was God's Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. But as the Bible records David's reign, it becomes very clear David is not God's ultimate Messiah. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He orchestrates the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And when David repents, he is forgiven. But it's very clear David is not the real answer to Israel's trouble or anyone else's trouble. God raised up David not to make David a hero. David's role was to prepare for the real hero. God promised that a descendant of David would reign over an eternal kingdom. The New Testament tells us that descendant of David arrived... 1,000 years after David. His name is Jesus Christ. God raised up David, and Scripture records the life of David, to make us eager for Jesus, the true Messiah. And this morning we're parachuting in to the final event of 2 Samuel. We don't know at what point in David's reign this happened, but it's the last event to be recorded in this book. So follow with me as we read the whole of chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south of the town, in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Taftim-Hodshi, then on to Danjan and around towards Sidon. 
Then they went towards the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So, The Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arauna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so that I can build an altar to the lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arauna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arauna gives all this to the king. Arauna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arauna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. 
This is God's word. And this passage is about the terror and the blessing of being in the hands of the Lord. As we read this incident, we're confronted with two big truths. First, the unavoidable reality of God's wrath. And second, the central reality of God's mercy. So first in verses 1 to 13, the unavoidable reality of God's wrath. Some time ago, I listened to a talk by a very well-known theologian. He was outlining the big themes of the Bible, and most of what he said was very helpful. But at one point, at the end of his talk, there was opportunity for the audience to ask him questions. And one of the questions was about God's wrath. A person wanted to know, is it a big deal? Should we be concerned about it? And the speaker's response was something like this. He said, well, yes, the Bible does mention it, but I don't want to talk about it because it's not really what the Bible's concerned about. Now, for a high-caliber theologian, that is just a bizarre thing to say. Because a 10-year-old reading through the Bible would pretty soon realize God's wrath is a very significant theme in the Bible. Thankfully, it is not the central theme. We'll see that later. But anyone who reads the Bible will notice God's wrath is an unavoidable reality. It's a major theme in the Old Testament, and it does not diminish one bit in the New Testament. In fact, if anything, it ramps up in the New Testament. And the one who ramps it up is Jesus Christ. Jesus' teaching on wrath makes us more uncomfortable than anything we find in the Old Testament. So if we cut God's wrath out of the Bible, we have a whole lot of cutting to do. If we refuse to think about God's wrath, we're missing something something the Bible does not want us to miss. It's hard to miss it here in our passage. Look again how chapter 24 begins. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. The again is probably referring to an incident back in chapter 21 of this book, where God dealt with the sin of Israel's previous king, King Saul. But here in verse 1, the point to notice is that God's anger burns against Israel, against the nation. In this chapter, we're going to see King David doing something foolish and sinful. But we mustn't miss this at the very start. Before David does anything in this incident, good or bad, we're told the Lord is angry with Israel. What we are not told is why he's angry. Certainly there is a reason. God is never angry without good reason. His anger is always justified. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, including his anger. He's never guilty of unrighteous anger. So here there is a good reason for God's anger, but we are not given the reason. Because we don't need to know. 
What we do need to know is that God was angry with Israel before David gets involved. And David then becomes God's instrument against Israel. Verse 1 says, the Lord incited David against them. God is going to use David to bring judgment on Israel. And what David does is he sends his right-hand man, Joab, and the other army commanders to enroll the fighting men. Literally, verse 2 says, the people. But later we find out this is a military enrollment. Down in verse 9, those who have been counted are able-bodied men who could handle a sword. People available for conscription. In verse 2, David sends Joab to count them from Dan to Beersheba. That's a way of saying all through Israel. Dan was the northernmost point of the land, and Beersheba was the southernmost point in Israel. Count them all, David says. That seems straightforward enough. Nothing sinister about it. But Joab objects in verse 3. May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord the King see it. But why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? We don't know why God was angry in verse 1, and here we don't know why Joab would object to doing a head count. God had not said it was wrong to count the people. In fact, earlier in the Bible, he gave procedures for this kind of count. But something about this bothers Joab. It bothers him in a pretty big way. And we might wonder, is it because Joab doesn't want the hassle of doing this? Verse 8 tells us it took almost 10 months to do the job, so it was a very big task. But that is unlikely to have been what bothered Joab. We learn plenty about Joab in the books of Samuel, and whatever else he might be, and he is an unusual character, Joab is not lazy. So we might look for other reasons. Is David planning a military campaign that God had not commanded or authorized? Is that why Joab doesn't like this? Or is David getting arrogant? Does he want the numbers so he can boast about them? Those are all possibilities. But in the end, we just don't know why David wanted this. What is important is that David overrules Joab's objection But when the job's done, nearly 10 months later, David realizes he has sinned. Look down to verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting man. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. One writer sums up the situation like this. Just as we do not know what offense Israel had committed to kindle the Lord's anger, in verse 1, so now we do not need to know the details of what David had done. The important point is that the king now knew himself to be what we know the people also were, sinners against the Lord. The king and his people are now in the same boat. They face God's just wrath. 
If we had read right through 2 Samuel, we'd know David has been in this position before. We mentioned it already. Back in chapter 12, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He'd had Uriah murdered. And in that situation, David prayed a prayer of repentance. It sounded a lot like this one. But however similar this situation looks to that earlier one, it's actually very different from chapter 12. How is it different? Well, remember what verse 1 told us. The Lord is angry with Israel. And he's using David to bring judgment on Israel. So yes, David is responsible for his own sin, and his own sin can be forgiven. But judgment is still coming on Israel. And so after David's prayer of repentance, we read in verse 11, Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? None of those are good options. They would all be terrible manifestations of God's wrath against sin. Whatever David chooses, it's bad. He cannot get Israel out of this. And if we pause here, we can acknowledge, yes, there's a lot that's left out of this passage. Lots of things we'd just love to know. Why is God angry? What had Israel done? Why did David want the man counted? Why was that sinful? So many interesting questions. But those questions are also distractions to us. They lead us away from what the passage wants to tell us. It wants to tell us Israel is under God's just wrath, and Israel's leader cannot take away God's wrath. He can't lead Israel out from under the wrath. David is as guilty as everyone else, and whatever choice David makes, he can't lead Israel out of this predicament. And what we need to see is that what is true of this passage and this situation is true of the whole world. The New Testament says we are all, by nature, deserving of God's wrath. We read that earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. So yes, we can discuss lots of interesting questions about how God organizes this or that, how he knows what he knows, how human choices might fit in with God's sovereignty. We can come up with fascinating questions. But we mustn't let those questions distract us from what the Bible wants to tell us. The Bible tells us the whole world is under God's wrath, And his wrath is fair, perfectly fair. It's not overblown. It's not out of proportion. Our sin is just as offensive as the offense God takes at our sin. God never overreacts. The world is under his wrath. His wrath is fair. And none of us can take it away. None of our bright ideas are adequate to do that. None of our schemes are good enough. 
None of our politicians or priests or philosophers can get us out of this mess. Sometimes we make the mistake of hoping maybe they will, but they can't. Nothing we come up with can deliver us from God's wrath. And once you and I finally see that, once that penny drops for us, then we are ready to see what David sees in verse 14. Remember, the prophet Gad has just given him three choices, famine, enemies, or plague. But David doesn't choose any of those options. Verse 14, David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. Some commentators argue that David is choosing plague here. They argue that because plague does come on Israel later. And they assume that's what David means by the hands of the Lord, as opposed to the hands of his enemies. But famine doesn't involve human enemies either, not directly. So why would the hands of the Lord mean plague? Now, as this is presented to us, David does not choose famine, enemies, or plague. He simply chooses to fall into the hands of the Lord. And he gives the reason why. It's because his mercy is great. David has been confronted with the unavoidable reality of God's wrath. But David knows there is an even more significant reality in the world. David puts his hope in the central reality of God's mercy. When we read the Bible, we cannot escape the reality of wrath. But we also find something else. Something that is even more fundamental. Mercy. It's even more fundamental because wrath is provoked by sin. There's a reason for God's wrath. We have earned it, but his mercy is free. It's unprovoked. It's unearned. Mercy flows out of God because that's the kind of God he is. Wrath is his necessary reaction to sin. He wouldn't be a good God if he ignored sin and evil. But God tells us, In the Bible, he tells us that he takes no pleasure in showing wrath. In contrast to that, God's mercy is unnecessary. There's nothing that requires him to show mercy to any of us. But he delights to show mercy. That's why we can say God's mercy is central. It's not all there is to say about God. It makes no sense if we don't see the reality of his wrath alongside that. Mercy means nothing if we don't understand wrath. God's mercy is not the whole story, but his mercy is central. One writer says, God is more merciful than anyone you know. He's more merciful than anyone you ever will know. You can count on that. Whatever you are guilty of, 
whatever you're afraid of, there's no safer place to throw yourself than into the hands of God. Earlier in the Old Testament, when Moses asked God to show his glory, God replied by describing himself. He said, I am the compassionate and gracious God. That is my glory. Yes, there are other things you need to know about me, but this is the heart of who I am. God wants us to know his mercy is not some kind of surprise. It's not the exception. It is his character. Do you know that about God? Sometimes we're tempted to ignore God's wrath, and that is a mistake. His wrath is real. It's the biggest problem any of us will ever face. We dare not take it lightly. But I hope you can see our God is not defined by his wrath. His wrath is there in the background. The picture makes no sense without it. But his wrath is not the heart of the picture. We do not truly know God until we see his mercy. And that is why when David sees only wrath on all sides, he doesn't run from God, he runs towards him. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. David says, I don't know how to solve this, but I know God's mercy is great. He will have the solution. I'll turn to him. David looks to God for mercy, and the rest of this passage focuses on two details about God's mercy. It shows us the place of mercy and the cost of mercy. Look at verse 15. So, the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. The place of mercy. When the prophet Gad gave David those three options, the last option was three days of plague. And we've seen that David didn't choose plague, but that is what God sends. And notice in verse 15, God sends a plague from that morning until the end of the time designated. The time had been announced as three days. But it turns out God cuts short his wrath. As his destroying angel approaches the city of Jerusalem, God says, enough. That'll do. He doesn't pour out the full measure of his wrath. He has mercy. And the place of mercy is recorded for us. God said, enough, not in the city of Jerusalem but on a piece of high ground just outside of Jerusalem. That's the place where God's mercy brought an end to his wrath. It's not a very remarkable place. A threshing floor, a place where a farmer processed his grain. Now eventually this would become a remarkable place. This is where David's son Solomon would later build the temple. 
This would become the place of God's mercy for many generations. Israelites would come there to meet God. But before God made it a place of his mercy, it was a completely unremarkable place. And that is how God works. He chooses unremarkable places to pour out his mercy. 1,000 years after this, God showed his mercy on another piece of high ground just outside Jerusalem. At that time, it was a hill in the shape of a skull. It was a place known as Golgotha or Calvary. And when God's wrath reached that hill, God again said, enough. That piece of high ground became the place of his mercy, not temporarily, like around his threshing floor, not even for a few generations like Solomon's temple. Golgotha became the place of God's mercy forever. It's the place where you and I can find mercy. We don't have to go there. We find mercy by trusting the one who died there. And that points to the last detail our passage focuses on. The cost of mercy. If we're going to understand what happens in these final verses, we need to realize that verse 17 is a flashback in time. Verse 16 has showed us where God chose to end the plague. Now verse 17 takes us back to when the plague is still going on. You'll notice that when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David knows about his own sin, but apparently he doesn't know what we know from verse 1. Even before David's sin, the people were already under God's wrath. David thinks this is all because of him. And as Israel's king, he offers to take the punishment on himself. It's a very noble idea. The shepherd will give his life to save the sheep. But David can't do that. He's a sinner too. So he can't die in the place of other sinners. His death wouldn't save anyone. But God responds to David's prayer by again sending the prophet Gad. This time Gad says in verse 18, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. And that's what David does. He climbs the hill to the place of God's mercy. God's mercy has not come yet. Remember these verses have taken us back to the time the plague is still going on. But now we learn God has chosen to show mercy in response to a sacrifice. It's part of the plan. And the final verses are taken up with the cost of the sacrifice. Initially, Araunah says to David, have it for free. Whatever you need, oxen, wood, just take it. You're the king. But look what David says to him in verse 24. The king replied to Araunah, no. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. 
So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David pays the price. He offers the sacrifice. And it is at this point, God says to the angel who has been delivering his wrath, enough, withdraw your hand. We heard that back in verse 16, but now we know this is what caused God to say enough. You can see that in the middle of verse 25. Then, we're told, after the sacrifice, the plague on Israel was stopped. So what do these verses show us? They show us there is always a price for God's mercy. The God of mercy is the God who cannot ignore sin. Here at Arauna's threshing floor, David paid the price in shekels of silver and with the sacrifice of the oxen. But at that other place of mercy, at Golgotha, God paid the price himself. The sacrifice on that hill outside Jerusalem, it wasn't oxen on the altar. It was Jesus' own body on a cross. God the Son paid the price so you and I could receive mercy. The sinless shepherd gave his life for the sheep. This is where the record of David's reign ends. With a plague of wrath and a sacrifice on a hill. Closing event of 2 Samuel points us to King Jesus. He is where we find the eternal mercy of God. Sin is a plague that brings eternal death to all of us. We've all earned God's eternal punishment. But the New Testament tells us this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's wrath is an unavoidable truth. We dare not ignore it. We dare not take it lightly. But if we will come in repentance and throw ourselves into God's hands, we will experience his mercy that saves us from wrath. So let's praise him for the cross. It's the place of mercy. It's the place where Jesus paid the cost of mercy. If you've been trying to find God's mercy some other way, please realize you can't. Come and find it at the cross. If you're a Christian... Never forget, the God you belong to is the compassionate and gracious God. The best place you could possibly be is in his merciful hands. No matter what you've done, no matter how far away you've strayed, whatever you're going through, you are safe in the hands of the Lord. Keep turning to him. Keep running back to him. His mercy is not something that we just find once at the point of our conversion. His mercy is there to be found every day. 
It's new every morning. Every time we gather around this table for the Lord's Supper, we're not just celebrating past mercy. We're celebrating the fresh mercy God pours out on us every single day. And he pours it out because of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to share the bread and wine together. We'll remember his sacrifice. But first, we're going to sing a song that leads us into this meal. It picks up what we've seen foreshadowed here in the life of David and shows how that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Come and see the King of love.